Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College, Emory, Virginia. I'm John Schuck, the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. What do we know about the historical Jesus? Was he a misguided apocalyptic prophet? Was he a wisdom sage? Did he even exist? Today we begin a four-part series entitled, Will the Real Jesus Please Rise? My four guests are four of the most prolific, provocative, and outspoken scholars regarding the historical Jesus in the United States. Each of them has a unique view of the historical Jesus. They have all published new books, and they all spoke with me on Religion for Life. In the next four weeks, you will hear interviews with Dr. John Dominic Crossan, Dr. Bart Ehrman, and Dr. Robert M. Price. Starting us off is Bishop John Shelby Spong. He is colorful, controversial, and he's on Religion for Life to share his insights about the Bible, Jesus, politics, and the church. Bishop Spong, from 1979 until his retirement in 2000, was the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Newark, New Jersey. He has written a number of books on Christianity and Jesus and the Bible, and he is my guest via phone from his home in Morris Plains, New Jersey. Welcome, Bishop Spong. Thank you, John. It's good to be with you. Uh, your latest book, Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World, is a series of essays on each book of the Bible, except uh, that it's done with awareness of modern critical scholarship. How did this book come to be? Well, it was actually born in a resort community in the mountains of western North Carolina. I was invited to do a summer lecture series down there, and these were very well-educated people. They were engineers and doctors and lawyers and wealthy enough to own homes in this residential community, so they were fairly successful business people. And they had me come and do a series of lectures, and I talked on the origins of the Bible, and I found that they were excited about this, primarily because uh, they were educated in all areas of life except the Scriptures and their religious life. That didn't mean they were not active members of the Christian Church, but they had what I would regard as a fourth-grade Sunday school concept of God and uh, about that brilliant uh, concept of the Bible. And so I began this series of lectures, and I found these people absolutely uh, turned on. We, the crowd grew to the place where we had to change the venue to get a bigger uh, auditorium to seat them. And, it, and it, it went on for two or three years. And it's occurred to me that if, if these people are that interested in the Bible, then there must be something wrong with our churches that they've never introduced people to what is commonplace in the academy. I've been in both sides of that. My life has been as a parish priest and as a bishop, but I've also studied at, at Harvard and Yale and Union Seminary in New York and Oxford and Cambridge and Edinburgh, and I've, I've taught at Harvard, and I've taught at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. And one of the things that impressed me was that things that are absolutely commonplace, not even debated in the academy, are considered controversial and, and even heretical by people in the pews because they've never heard anything like this. They've never heard such basic things as, as the Bible is written in the first century when everybody believed that the earth was the center of a three-tiered universe, when they believed that epilepsy was caused by demon possession. And if you literalize those stories, they become nonsensical. And even part of the Old Testament is written out of a tribal mentality where God is portrayed as hating everybody the chosen people hate. And it's a, a very strange concept of God, and particularly when you get 
later in the scriptures and have God redefined as love and justice and even the injunction to love your enemies, and you compare that with stories about God who really hates Egyptians and sends plague after plague on them, and God hates the Amorites and stops the sun in the sky so Joshua can kill more of them, uh, that becomes an interesting contrast. And when that's lifted to people's consciousness, they either want to get rid of the Bible or they want to be told that there's a different way to read it than literally. And that's basically what I did. And that so impressed me that I decided that if they were that interested, there might be an audience for this sort of thing. And and I began the process of writing this book. Uh, you wrote that you, you wish to free the Bible's insights from the debilitating power of literalism. Is it, is it also fair to say that you wish to free it from the control of church dogma? Well, but I think they're both. They work hand in glove. Most church dogma is based upon a very literal uh, concept of, of the biblical story. For example, the doctrine of Jesus ascending into heaven makes absolutely no sense to space-age people. Uh, as Carl Sagan said to me on one occasion, if Jesus literally ascended into the sky, and even if he traveled at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, he hadn't yet escaped our galaxy. <laughs> That's when you begin to understand that you're living with two different worlds. And and the scriptures, most Gentile Christians, and that's where most of us are in the Western world, don't understand that you you can't read the New Testament if you don't understand that it's based on on Old Testament characters. Uh, for example, the the earthly father of Jesus is he's not even introduced in the story until the ninth decade in the Gospel of Mark, but his name is is Joseph, and. And Joseph is a very important name in Jewish history because the Jewish state was divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom were, was called Judah, and they were thought of as the descendants of a man named Judah. The northern kingdom were thought of as the sons of Ephraim, and he was the son of Joseph. So Joseph is the patriarch of the northern kingdom. So when Matthew tells the story of Jesus' miraculous birth, he has him be part of the tribe of Judah because he makes the point that he's the descendant of David, and David was a king of Judah. And then he brings the earthly father in and makes his name Joseph, so he binds up the whole Jewish nation. Now, how's anybody going to understand that if they don't know the first element about uh, the way the Hebrew Scriptures shaped the Christian story? Christianity did not leave the synagogue until about the year 88 of this common era. That is, the Christian movement was part of the synagogue, for until about 58 years after the crucifixion. And during that 58 years, Mark was certainly written, and Matthew was certainly written, and maybe Luke was written. We had a little more trouble dating Luke. But if you lift the Bible out of its Jewish context and try to read it as a Gentile book, it makes absolutely no sense. And so that's another part of the dimension uh, of, uh, of doing Bible study in the 21st century. Yeah, you talk about uh, an interesting view of the Gospel of Mark, that the uh, format of the Gospel of Mark, the layout, is based on uh, patterns of Jewish worship. That's absolutely correct. Uh, Mark, if you, if you know the Jewish liturgical year, uh, it, begin, it ends with Passover, and it begins with Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year. Rosh Hashanah is when the people are gathered, the trumpet is blown, and the people are told the kingdom of God is at hand, and they are to repent and prepare for the kingdom. And that's really the John the Baptist story. That's where Mark begins his narrative. If you keep reading Mark, the next Jewish festival is, is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You'll find a series of very brief stories in which Jesus goes into that which is considered evil and brings goodness out of it, uh, both healing stories and cleansing stories, cleansing of demons. 
And one interesting story is that one of the, his disciples is a tax collector. That meant he was an unclean Jew who had given up his Judaism to work for the unclean Gentiles. And so Jesus makes a disciple out of this person. It's a, that's a wonderful Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement sort of story. And then you keep reading Mark, and you come to chapter 4, which is the, the story of the sower who goes out and sows, and he finds four different kinds of soil, and he plants his seed in there, and he gets four different kinds of harvest. And if you know the Jewish calendar, the next uh, celebration is called Sukkot of Tabernacles, and it's the Jewish Harvest Festival. It was an eight-day celebration in the fall of the year. You keep reading it, and you come to the story of Jesus' transfiguration, where the light of God is restored not to the temple, but restored to Jesus. The temple had been destroyed by the Romans in the year 70, and Mark's written a couple of years after that. So Jesus is being portrayed as the new temple, and, and that's the festival of dedication that people call today Hanukkah. And then you, you have the story of Jesus' crucifixion told against the background of the Passover, and that's, that's not because he was crucified during the Passover season, as most of us have been taught to think. That's because Jesus was seen as symbolic of the Passover lamb, who was, whose death broke the power of death and enabled the angel of death to pass over and these houses and not to destroy the firstborn son in every household. So that, you know, it, that's, a, that's a lot to cram into a brief answer for a radio program. But, but Mark's gospel follows the Jewish liturgical calendar from Rosh Hashanah to Passover. And that's why Mark's gospel is only 60% of the length of Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke both have, John in, uh, have Mark in front of them when they write, and they expand Mark so that Mark has, so that Matthew and Luke have Jesus stories for the whole calendar year, all 12 months. Mark only did six and a half months, and that's why Mark is shorter than Matthew and Luke. Now, it takes a while to open that up, and I did that in a book called Liberating the Gospels, Reading the Bible with Jewish Eyes. But that's, an, that's a dimension to studying and reading the New Testament that Christians simply do not have available to them because it's not on their radar screens. And once you open that passage up, then much of the New Testament begins to make sense, like the miracle stories of Jesus that I won't go into, but they're mostly all Moses stories and Elijah stories being retold about Jesus. And those stories then, um, we tend to think of them naively perhaps as uh, the gospel writers, as kind of journalists embedded with the Jesus movement, but really yeah. these are creative authors, and, so they, and they would have uh, not expected their audience to read these stories literally. That's correct. They, they wrote for a Jewish audience, and they were Jewish writers. And, uh, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. When you get into these Gospels, uh, you, you find that, that miracles attributed to Jesus are retelling of Moses' stories and retelling of Elijah's stories. And, and that signal in Matthew's Gospel, because at the beginning of this Gospel, he tells a story about a wicked king named Herod who goes down to Bethlehem and kills all the Jewish boy babies trying to get rid of God's promised deliverer. And every Jewish person would have known that that was a Moses story. It was the Pharaoh that went down to Egypt and killed all the Jewish boy babies trying to get rid of God's deliverer. That was the signal that Matthew was giving, that he was going to tell the story. Matthew is the only gospel writer that gives us the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is fashioned after Psalm 100, uh, 119. And that was the psalm that the Jews read on their vigil day, in a, of a day called Shavuot, in which they celebrated Moses receiving the Torah from God at Mount Sinai. So Jesus is portrayed as the new Moses who goes up on a new mountain to give the new Torah 
and the Beatitudes that open the Sermon on the Mount are parallel to the commandments that open the Torah. And all of the all of these things are so obvious once you crack the code and get into the biblical story and stop reading it as Western literal Gentiles. When you get to John's Gospel, it's particularly apparent because John is almost at war with uh, literalists. The conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is a typical literalist. He says, born again? I'm a grown man. How can I climb up into my mother's womb and be born again? That's nonsensical. The next chapter, Jesus is with the Samaritan woman by the well, and he says to her that if you drink of the water that I have to give you, you'll never thirst again. And she looks at him and says, man, you don't even have a bucket. And a few minutes later, the disciples come in, and they've been out to get food, and they, they bring food to Jesus, and they say, you've got to eat. You haven't eaten for a long time. And Jesus says, I have food of which you do not know. And the disciples are literalists. They say, wonder who brought him that food? There's a, there's a, a lifting of, of the Jesus story, if you get into the Gospels deeply enough, beyond the boundaries of literalism. And religion always devolves into literalism. And the reason it does that is that religion is designed to help people be secure, not to help them find the truth, but to help them be secure. And you can't be secure unless you become sure that your religion's the only religion. That's why the Pope has to be infallible. That's why the Bible has to be inerrant. That's why all religious people claim that they have the one true religion. That meets security needs. It doesn't meet any needs of, of truth or objectivity or scholarship, but it meets security needs. And we need to break the Christian story out of the need to give people personal security, and then I think it will offer something pretty powerful and pretty important in this uh, non-religious world. If you're just joining us, my guest is Bishop John Shelby Spong, author of a new book called Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World. Um, and about that title, do you mean non-religious people? I, it seems to me that the world is becoming frighteningly uh, more religious. Even our presidential yeah. candidates are running for pastor-in-chief, it seems, at some Yeah, I think that's, there's some truth in that. But what I'm talking about is that, that you and I live in a world where this, the framework of yesterday's traditional religion no longer works. Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo destroyed God's dwelling place above the sky. And when that dwelling place is destroyed, a lot of other things destroyed. And if God doesn't have a dwelling place above the sky, how is God going to keep God's record books up to date so that you're judged pro- appropriately at the, at the final judgment? Uh, to whom are you praying if this God is not above the sky looking down upon you and, and ready to intervene and take care of you? So that Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo sort of rendered the traditional religious view of God. Well, they rendered that God homeless. We don't know where that God lives anymore. We can't locate that God. Then along came Isaac Newton, and Isaac Newton began to tell us how the world operated. And there was not much room in this world for miracle and magic or for divine intervention when Newton got through. So that all the things we used to attribute to God's intervention, we now explain with no reference to God whatsoever. And so God sort of became unemployed. So the traditional way we've thought about God is simply dissipated. And I think we are moving, at least in the Western world, we're moving more and more into a secular, non-religious society. And that's true among the Jews, it's true among the Christians. And what you have going on in our society and what's manifested in our political process is that when, when religion dies the last gasp is to be hysterical and to try to impose yesterday's religion on today's world. We now have state legislatures debating 
about what women, what has to be done to women's bodies. I mean, we had a legislature in Virginia, of all places, that that required uh, an invasive process uh, that a woman couldn't avoid. She didn't have a choice if this law passed, and they modified it very slightly, but it passed. So we're in we're in the throes of this thing, and and uh, I think we'll get through it. I hope we'll get through it. I hope we don't make a terrible mistake and institutionalize this stuff, because then we'll have a revolution. My guest, Bishop John Shelby Spong, you were uh, instrumental um, in uh, a leading religious figure in regarding gay rights and uh, rights in, within the church and within society for gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgender people. In fact, one of the chapters of your book uh, is called Paul's Secret Thorn. Um, you suggest that the Apostle Paul might have been gay. I'd be interested to hear your explanation for that, but the bigger question I want to ask is, um, have you discovered that saying that and writing that has been helpful for lesbian and gay people who've grown up with religious repression to find uh, an important figure in the Bible who they can relate well, I, to? I think it's so, but more importantly, I think that why any gay or lesbian person would be interested in coming to a church that's basically condemned them for the last three or four hundred years always amazes me, and yet they do. Uh, but, you, you know, it's the Bible gets quoted in a lot of ways. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I went to an evangelical Episcopal church, and that church taught me that segregation was the will of God and quoted the Bible to prove it. And that church taught me that men were superior to women and quoted the Bible to prove it. That church taught me it was okay to hate other religions, and especially the Jews, and quoted the Bible to prove it. And that church taught me that homosexuals were either mentally sick or morally depraved, and quoted the Bible to prove it. I had a lot to overcome. Now, most of the time, when you cut yourself out from under that kind of biblical religion, you, you say, well, I don't want to be part of that stuff right. anymore forever. Now, I don't know why that wasn't my response. My response was to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the Bible, to where I found out that the Bible is not about these things. If you followed the Bible literally, there'd be nobody left in this world alive. Now, the Bible says you should be put to death if you worship a false god. Well, who's going to tell you who the true god is? The Bible says you should be put to death if you're a homosexual. You should be put to death if you talk back or willfully disobedient to your parents. Uh, it even says you're to be put to death if you have sex with your mother-in-law, which is interesting. That's in Leviticus 20. I've never heard that preached on, because I don't think preachers spend much time preaching on what they themselves and probably their congregations can't even imagine ever doing. And when you get to Paul, Paul is clearly a troubled man. The trouble has something to do with his body. Uh, he says that over and over again. He talks about a thorn in his flesh. He talks about praying to God to remove this thing, and, and God says that I can't, uh, I can't take it away. You've just got to live with it. He talks about a war that goes on in his body between the law that his mind follows and the law that his body follows. He talks about sin dwelling in his members, and the Greek word for member is melos, M-E-L-O-S, which means a bodily appendage, and he cannot control his members. Well, I don't know anybody that can't tell their arms and legs what to do and have their arms and legs obey them. But we have another appendage that's an organ, and it doesn't always uh, do what the mind wants. That's why Viagra sales are so great. That's why we have uh, all sorts of things that uh, are not savory to talk about on the air. Uh, and so Paul talks about not being able to control the members of his body, and he talks about what a wretched man that he is, deserving of death. And then he finds that somehow God, in the person of Jesus, loves him just as he is. And he waxes eloquent 
And that's when he writes things like the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and that's when he writes that nothing can separate him from the love of God. It's a powerful story. I don't understand why the Christian Church has spent most of its energy for the last 25 years debating whether or not women are fully human and debating whether or not gay and lesbian people should be welcome in the Church. That's a church I could never be a member of. If a church ever told me that my wife and my daughters are somehow unequal human beings, or if a church ever told me that there was anybody who was not welcomed in the church as a child of God, I don't want to be part of that church anymore. So I sit back and watch this institution that I love, expending its capital and its energy on debates that are so far beneath the meaning of the gospel. If Jesus is quoted accurately in John's gospel as saying that my purpose is that you might have life and have it more abundantly, then anything that we do as an institution that diminishes the humanity of any child of God is nothing but evil. And you can't make evil good and still have integrity. So, you know, I, I think those things all follow out of a, of a serious engagement with the Scriptures. My guest, Bishop John Shelby Spong, speaking by phone with me from his home in New Jersey, the author of Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World. And I'm thinking about, in my own denomination, of kind of an obsession with the authority of Scripture. And I, and I think, uh, just as you've talked about, is the script, what's the Scripture even authoritative about? Um, it certainly isn't about cosmology. It isn't about evolution. Um, has, the, has the Bible moved to irrelevance? Is there, what, what do we want to well, reclaim the Bible so. for? See, I think what the Bible says, and I don't ever want it to be lost because of this, I think what the Bible says is that life is holy. That that's what it means to say, I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of all things, that life is holy. And what the Jesus story says is that everybody is loved. And what the, the epistles in the book of Acts and the life of the church is supposed to convey is that our job is to help people become all that they're capable of being. I think that's pretty relevant. So I think we've got to develop this, this Christian church so that we can affirm that uh, every human being is holy, and you cannot enslave that which is holy. You cannot, uh, you cannot be prejudiced against them because some are male and some are female and some are gay and some are straight and some are black and some are white and some are Palestinian and some are, are Jewish or, or Shia and Sunni and Catholic and Protestant. Look at all the terrible things we've done in the name of God to people. But all life is holy. I think that's pretty essential. And the Jesus story says there's nothing you can ever do or nothing you can ever be that separates you from the love of God. Even when you kill the love of God, the love of God loves you. And the Holy Spirit simply says you're called to become all that you were created to be. And that's, to me, that's, that's a pretty powerful message, and I think it's rooted deep in the Bible, but it's not in a literal Bible. You can take a literal Bible, and you can almost make it be as destructive as anything you can imagine. And if you look back at the history of Europe, we fought Protestants and Catholics, fought a 30-year war, each trying to impose their religion on the other. Every Christian nation in Europe either ghettoized the Jewish people or expelled them. It was a, Jewish, it was a Christian nation with more biblical scholars and more theologians than any other nation in the world, Germany, that did the Holocaust, that murdered six million Jews to say nothing of a number of Slavic people and mentally handicapped and physically handicapped and, and gay and lesbian people. They were just wiped out. Uh, I don't know how you get from 
love your enemies, and I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, to the kind of behavior that's marked institutional church life over the centuries. I don't know how you make that transition. And I find it strange that people still defend that. And they think of, they think of people that take my point of view as sort of alien to the mainstream of the Christian church. Well, I think the Christian church in its institutional form has been alien from the mainstream of Christian life for a long time on a number of issues. And that's uh, really, we have just about out of time, Bishop Spawn, but that's really my, my final question for you. About a dozen years ago, you wrote a book, Why Christianity Must Change or Die. Do you, do you see any signs of positive change? Well, I, I do. I think the gay battle is over. Uh, my church mm-hmm. now has two openly gay bishops who have partners. Uh, when I retired as the Bishop of Newark, we had 35 out-of-the-closet gay and lesbian priests, and 31 of them lived openly with their partners, and I never had a complaint from any church they were serving. The women's issue is pretty well over. Uh, we have a presiding bishop of my church who is a, an outstanding woman. About 50% of our clergy are now female. There's still racism in our society, but in the sense that you can look at the President of the United States and see an African-American has been elected by a rather substantial majority to lead this nation means that we've come a long way from on that issue. I think there have been a lot of changes. Now, unfortunately, I fear that institutional Christianity has been on the wrong side of most of those changes. It was the Bible Belt of the South that resisted, that wanted to perpetuate slavery and then resisted desegregation and did it with a great deal of violence. You know, those were Christians who loose police dogs on marching black people and bombed churches in Alabama and and hit Representative John Lewis of Atlanta over the head with a, with a lead pipe, giving him a fractured skull and a concussion. Those were Christians. And, and yet I think now uh, there's still a lot of racism connected with politics today, and I think you see it in, in things like wondering whether Mr. Obama was born in Kenya or in the United States and whether he's really a Muslim and not one of us. That's, that's nothing except veiled racism. But my sense is that's, that's loud and not deep. And, and so I think there's a lot that suggests uh, that we're changing. In my career now, all I do is lecture on the Bible around the world, and I find people are interested in a way that they weren't interested 25 to 50 years ago because they're looking for something that has great meaning. And I hope this, I hope this book will be a resource because what I've tried to do in this book is to, is to bring the knowledge available in their academies of Christian learning to the attention of the people who occupy the pews of our church. And, and when they hear that, if they're dedicated to religious fundamentalism, they're going to be offended. If they're open to growing into a new understanding of Christianity, the book will be a resource for them. And that book is entitled Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World. My guest on Religion for Life has been Bishop John Shelby Spong. Bishop Spong, thank you so much for being with me today. A pleasure, John. Wonderful to be with you, and good luck with your program. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Next week, we continue our series, Will the Real Jesus Please Rise? I will be speaking with Dr. Bart Ehrman of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His new book is entitled, Did Jesus Exist? Dr. Ehrman says, yes, but he isn't the Jesus your preacher told you about. I'm John Schuck, the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. More information about my congregation can be found at FPC Elizabeth. 
www.bethden.org. Information about Religion for Life, including upcoming shows and podcasts, are available at religionforlife.me. Follow Religion for Life on Facebook and Twitter. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.